morning again. Thanks for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church. Well, today we begin a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Joshua. We will not examine every single verse in this series. Rather, we're going to take a bird's eye view of the main themes, the significant events, and the most memorable highlights. In chapter 1, which is where we start this morning, is certainly one of those highlights. This chapter contains some of the most inspiring words, not only of the book of Joshua, but of the entire Bible. Reading Joshua 1 makes you feel like you could run through a brick wall. It's a particular favorite when it comes to teaching or preaching on leadership, and rightfully so, as we'll see in a few minutes. But Joshua 1 is more than just a rousing, motivational speech about strength and courage. In fact, Joshua 1 tells us more about God than it does about anyone or anything else. Namely, it tells us that God is with his people wherever they go. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and be sure to follow along if you're watching at home as well. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you here right now with these people. Uh, Sunday morning is a privilege. It's an honor. It's a joy. Uh, it's a responsibility, Lord. It's something you call us to do. It's something that we are blessed to do. Uh, so, Lord, thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. I ask that our worship would be honoring to you, glorifying to you, uh, that it would be beneficial to us. Uh, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, uh, practically, that being here together with brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, as Chris just said in his meditation, would, would be a means of sanctification for us. That this would be a, one of the ways that you grow us and mature us in our faith and our obedience and our love for you and our love for each other is by simply being here and worshiping you and sitting next to each other. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would use this to grow us this morning. Uh, but again, more than anything, uh, this is not about us. This is about you. And so I pray that our worship would be glorifying to you today. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, way back in the book of Genesis, God promised a man named Abram, later known as Abraham, that he would be the father of a great nation. On top of that, this great nation would have a great land. God told Abraham to pack up his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and everything he owned, and head to the land that God would show him, the promised land of Canaan. Now, while Abraham wasn't perfect... He didn't always act righteously and trust God flawlessly. He is remembered as a man of great faith. In fact, Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. And that faith was not in vain. Because eventually God fulfilled those promises. 
Abraham gets his descendants, even though he and Sarah were well past childbearing age. And Abraham gets his promised land. Abraham's son Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his jealous brothers, sold into slavery, and winds up in Egypt. And in what can only be described as God's providence, Joseph ends up second in command in the most powerful empire in the world. Eventually, a famine in Canaan drives Joseph's brothers to Egypt for food. And after a few tests, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, forgives them for their sin against him years earlier, and invites the whole family to move to Egypt. So if you're following along in the timeline, this means that Abraham's descendants aren't in Canaan anymore. But I'm sure they'll return to the promised land soon enough after this temporary, necessary getaway, right? Well, not exactly. The Hebrews' time in Egypt proves to be less than a vacation and a little longer than they planned. They're enslaved in Egypt. They wallow for some 400 years under harsh conditions and cruel pharaohs. That is, until Abraham's God hears their cries and acts. God raises up a man named Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and back to the promised land they left behind. And through amazing signs and wonders and a few frightening acts of judgment for good measure, God delivers his people from bondage. They miraculously cross the Red Sea on dry ground. God stays with the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness. He gives them bread from heaven, more quail than they know what to do with, and water from a rock. He protects them from danger, defeats their foes, gives them his law, and gives them his presence. A cloud by day a fire by night, and eventually a portable temple. And as the Israelites make their way through the woods, a young man begins to emerge. And that man's name is Joshua. He plays an important role in battle as one of Moses' generals. He's close by on Mount Sinai when Moses receives the Ten Commandments. He's identified as Moses' assistant in Exodus 24, verse 13. But Joshua really comes into his own in the book of Numbers. As God's people stand on the edge of the promised land that they've heard so much about, Moses sends in spies to scope things out. And one of those spies is identified in Numbers 13, verse 8, as Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Ephraim. A few verses later, we learn that Moses renamed Hoshea Joshua. Remember those two names, because they'll be important later. Hoshea, Joshua. 
Well, the report from the spies is not good. They were shocked, even horrified by what they saw. The land was just as great as they had heard. It flowed with milk and honey. But the people were strong. Their cities were large. In other words, these Israelite vagabonds didn't stand a chance. But just when the rest of the spies and the rest of the people are ready to turn around and hightail it back to Egypt, two men still trust in God's promises. One of them is named Caleb, and the other is our old friend Joshua. But because of the Israelites' lack of faith, God punishes them with a 40-year waiting period before they can enter the promised land. An entire generation of Hebrews, all those over the age of 20, miss out on the land flowing with milk and honey due to their lack of faith. And due to his own sin, not even Moses will step foot in the promised land. But you know who will? Caleb. You know who else will? Joshua. In fact, Joshua will lead the charge. God commissions Joshua to be Moses' successor. So that's the lay of the land by the time we arrive in Joshua chapter 1. The 40 years of waiting and wandering and hoping and anticipating has finally come to an end. Moses is gone. But the long-awaited promised land is just a river away. Nevertheless, the enemies are just as fierce as ever. They haven't gotten any smaller in the last 40 years. The cities are just as large. They haven't shrunk either. The task is no less daunting. These Israelites may be tempted to repeat the sin of the previous generation and turn back in fear when they're so close to the promised land they can taste it. But then, in Joshua chapter 1, God speaks. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, it's kind of strange. God doesn't seem all that concerned that Moses is dead. Moses is called the servant of the Lord in verse 1. And that's actually a very important title. One that Joshua won't earn until he's dead as well. But other than that, God seems to speak rather shortly, gruffly, matter-of-factly about Moses' death. Moses, my servant, is dead. That's pretty much all he says. I mean, doesn't God know how important Moses was? He faithfully led the people through thick and thin for 40 plus years. Can you really just replace someone like Moses at the drop of a hat? As they say in sports, is it really as simple as next man up in this scenario? If you didn't know better, you'd almost think that God was never really dependent upon Moses Joshua, or any other man to begin with. But that would just be crazy, wouldn't it? However, God quickly moves on from this talk of Moses' death to talk of Joshua's mission. It's clear. Get up. Get moving. Lead the people across the Jordan River, which was no small task on its own. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. Take the land that I've promised you, the land that I'm giving you. If you're there, it's yours. God doesn't appear to be even remotely concerned about the fight the current residents may put up. He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Follow my law no matter what. Be strong and very courageous. Go as far as I tell you. And oh yeah, one more thing. Be strong and courageous. And before I forget, remember that the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So this pregame pep talk does the trick. Joshua takes charge and he's strong and courageous as God commanded him to be. The people respond to Joshua's leadership, and unlike their ancestors, they're strong, courageous, and faithful as well. The promised land awaits. There's milk and honey with their name on it. 
After 40 years of moving from place to place and never really having a home and only hoping and dreaming of a promise that was made a long time ago that seemed really, really, really far away, the Israelites can finally settle down and rest in the land that God gave Abraham so long ago. So now we're ready for the rest of the story. Spies, intrigue, miracles, scandals, battles, heroics, and controversy. The book of Joshua is certainly not for the faint of heart. But the rest will have to wait. Zach will pick up where we left off next Sunday in Joshua chapter 2. And I'm leaving for vacation today, so I have incentive to keep this short. But for now... What do we learn from Joshua 1? What do we learn from Joshua 1? Well, first off, it's worth noting how little we learn about Joshua himself. For generations, teachers, preachers, and scholars have tried to fill in the gaps of Joshua's biography. For example, one author writes... Joshua was a military leader, a political leader, and a spiritual leader. He was quiet and unassuming, but he was not intimidated by his responsibilities or the task that lay before him. He was a battlefield genius, particularly in the areas of careful planning, strategy, and execution. He was a capable administrator for the nation. Effective in maintaining harmony between people and groups. He was able to challenge his people by both his word and example. His pattern is a hard one to better. Now, if that's all true, you can understand why leadership gurus love Joshua chapter 1. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to sell Joshua short. Maybe he really is as great as that author just said. However, I'm not sure we get such a clear picture of Joshua the man in Joshua the book. And it certainly doesn't seem to be the main thrust of our text today. And, you know, maybe it's supposed to be that way. As we mentioned earlier, in a sense... Joshua's just the next in line. He's the latest tool in the hand of the real main Kents. This part of the story is really about Joshua. The same way the previous part of the story apparently wasn't really about Moses. This story, the story of Scripture, is not primarily about strong and courageous men and women. They're important, supporting actors. Not to sound crude or dismissive, but in some ways, they're props. This story, this book, this entire book, is mainly about God, not us. Look at it this way. Rather than focusing all our attention on how strong and courageous Joshua was, 
and how strong and courageous the Israelites were and how strong and courageous we need to be, too. I suggest we start by focusing on the God whose presence makes strength and courage possible for his people. The only reason, Joshua, the Israelites, you or me, can be strong and courageous people of God is because God is with us wherever we go. In the words of commentator Martin Woodstra, in the present age of insecurity and fear, of staggering worldwide problems and challenges, our primary need is to stress the truth of the everlasting faithfulness of God as set forth in the book of Joshua. This was, so we believe, the primary purpose of this book. Israel was yet to go through many perilous times. Enemy armies would sweep through the land. Apostasy would often be rife. Yet to come would be devastation, deportation, and captivity. We talked about that last week in the book of Ezra. And in those times, the faithful would need to know the joyful word of confidence and of hope. That God remains loyal to the word once spoken. God's people need to know who God is. We need to know what God is like. He is faithful to his promises. He is great and good. And he is with us wherever we go. Only when we know those things can we be strong and courageous ourselves. So maybe the biggest takeaway here is our complete, our utter, our total dependence upon God. This is a point that the psalmist understood quite well. Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 91 verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The psalmist knew that they desperately needed God to be with them and for them at all times. The same was true for the Israelites. If they had any hope of reclaiming their promised land. And the same is true of us. We can only be strong and courageous. Like Joshua. Like the Israelites. 
when we recognize our complete, utter, total dependence upon God. That without him, we can be the strongest and most courageous people in the world, but we will still be hopeless. Think back to Joshua's old name, Hosea. Hosea can be translated, he saves. But Joshua, the new name that Moses gave him, means God saves. It's almost as though Moses had learned after all those years that salvation comes from God, not from man. Salvation comes from God's grace, not our works, not our virtues, not our strength, and not our courage. The Israelites could enter the promised land not because they had a great and imposing leader in Joshua, a brilliant military general, a navigator of conflict. They could enter the promised land because they had a good and faithful God who would be with them wherever they go. And the Israelites, good and faithful God, way back in Joshua chapter 1, is your good and faithful God as well. If you believe are completely, utterly, and totally dependent upon God for what we need, both in this life and in the life to come. In the New Testament, another Joshua shows up. And this one's name, when translated from Hebrew to Greek, sounds more like Jesus. The first Joshua was used by God. The second was and is God. Joshua would lead God's people to temporary rest in an earthly promised land. Jesus leads God's people to permanent rest in a heavenly promised land. Joshua led God's people to victory over the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and all other kind of ites. Jesus leads God's people to victory over a fallen world, our sinful flesh, and the devil himself. Joshua accomplished all this by defeating God's enemies. Jesus accomplished this by dying for God's enemies, of whom we were once counted. And because Jesus came, and when Jesus comes again, all of us who believe in him can say, in the fullest sense of the words, the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. Because Jesus came and will come again, we too can be strong and courageous as we face our own hardships and look forward to entering the eternal promised land that he secured for us on the cross. So whatever danger or fear or dread it is that you're facing now, know that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You are known by God, and you are loved by God. Your Lord has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by his death and resurrection. You are one with him by faith. Your sins are forgiven. 
And you don't even have to fear the day of judgment. Much less things in this life. If you're looking for a reason to be strong and courageous, or better yet, if you're looking for a New Testament text to be strong and courageous, Romans 8.31 is a great place to turn. The Apostle Paul writes there, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That text makes you want to run through a brick wall too. Brothers and sisters, trust in God. Rely on him. Depend on him, worship him, obey him, follow him. Be strong and courageous as you look at this life and as you prepare for the next, knowing that he is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us. It's easy to feel alone. It's easy to feel isolated. It's easy to feel like we're completely on our own in this world at many times and in many ways. But Lord, remind us that you are with us wherever we go. As we read in Psalm 139, there's nowhere we can go from your presence. We could go to the highest heaven. We could go to the bottom of the ocean and You're there with us. You see us, you know us, you love us, and we can't escape from your presence. And that's a good thing, because we don't want to escape from your presence. So Lord, remind us that you're with us. And with that in mind, help us be strong and courageous. As we just read in Romans 8, there's that great passage of of confidence and victory, but there's also that acknowledgement that All the day long, we're like sheep to be slaughtered. Things don't always work well for us. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes life is hard. But Lord, help us be confident still. Even as we face down enemies, even as hardships inevitably arrive, help us be strong and courageous, knowing that you are with us wherever we may go. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. 
Lord, remind us of that day in and day out. Help us trust in you, depend upon you, rely upon you, and know that you keep your promises. You're faithful and good, and you will not let us down. And one day, eventually, we will be in your presence. We will rest with you. And the promised land that we have to look forward to as believers in Christ is so much better than Canaan. It's so much better than a little chunk of land on the other side of the Jordan. It's so much better than flowing with milk and honey. What we have to look forward to is being in your very presence. And so, Lord, help us be strong and courageous until we get there. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us. Lord, help us obey you and love you and worship you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.